0: Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we're featuring portfolio manager Dan DuPont's appearance at Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event held recently in Toronto. Since joining Fidelity in 2001 as a research analyst, Dan has gone on to manage several mandates, including Fidelity North Star Fund, alongside Joel Tillinghast, Morgan Peck, Sam Shemovitz, and Kyle Weaver. Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund. A value-oriented large-cap strategy, and Fidelity Global Value Long Short Fund, a value-oriented all-cap strategy that features both long and shorting opportunities. Today, Dan speaks with host Pat Bolland and reflects on a number of topics including how his investment style of aggressive patience fared during 2022 and throughout his overall tenure. Also, a look at how Canadian Large Cap Fund has captured less than half of the market downside during Dan's tenure what kinds of opportunities he looks for when shorting companies, and how macro narratives such as inflation and monetary policy could impact his positioning. Overall, Dan is constantly looking to build a portfolio of stable companies that aren't as impacted by unpredictable macro developments and trading at cheap valuations in relation to the sustainable free cash flow they generate. Additionally, Dan and Pat field questions from the live audience. Please note you will hear references to a few slides displayed to the in-person audience. This podcast was recorded on January 31st, 2023. For more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event, please subscribe to not miss upcoming releases and also take a look at the other recently released episodes. Or for full video replays of the event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep and investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the upside newsletter. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Currently you're being described as aggressive patience.
2: What does that mean? Yeah, my, my patient side is, uh, is, is typically kind of what shows because um, my process is very stable and I'm just waiting for opportunities. I'm just uh, seeing a lot of risks everywhere. And when I see an opportunity, we will go in uh, fairly aggressively. We will make it a big position quickly. Um, That's where both patience and, you know, being aggressive come from. It's just being sitting there with the ammunition. And when, you know, the elephant, you know, walks by, then, you know, you're ready to pounce. Um, But it, it can be, you know, a little bit um, boring for some people to watch. Um, It's because this process just, you know, it's day in, day out, doing the same thing, waiting for opportunities and avoiding risks at all costs. Um, but it's just repeating the same process, I guess, is what I do when I present that, you know, that might be, you know, why I haven't been uh, in at this uh, presentation for a few years, because there's nothing much new to to come up with. Um, I mean, the other reason might be because I'm always bearish, um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, today I'll make sure that I don't get invited for another five years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh let's uh, let's talk uh, uh, gosh let's talk about your principles your four principles of investing. Yep. Can you walk us through those and I'm going to have you do it again when you get to the long short run but walk me through your four principles loosely.
2: Well the, 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 so the first one is the is the overarching one it's the one that's most important is is protecting capital at all costs. So I'm trying not to lose money if possible um it's not feasible you know realistically but we're, we're trying to avoid risks and if we can't predict something you know we'll, we'll stay away so that's the that's the number one point the way you do that is you invest in higher quality companies whether it's from balance sheet or operationally uh, or a combination of both hope, uh, hopefully if you can get them at a, at a fair price um, there's also just being patient on price uh, that's, that's a part that a lot of people find very difficult. And, and I'll go into why it was even a little more difficult over the last 11, 12 years, based on what, um, what authorities were doing. Um, and then finally, I'm not trying to predict things that are very, very difficult to predict or practically unpredictable, like interest rates, commodity prices, currency movements, inflation rates. I try not to have that be an input into my decision-making process. I will wait though for extremes in those to take advantage of this situation. So in 2020, the oil price went massively negative and uh, the oil stocks discounted a very dire future for uh, oil companies. So we took advantage of that in Canadian large cap fund. Those things happen. You know, not that often. And when they do, we take big positions.
1: Except we've had COVID and we've had interest rate risk, and this has played perfectly for you. And the proof is in the pudding. I was looking at, you we have a a chart of your Canadian large cap fund and the downside protection and your down market
2: capture sitting at 32%, like it's nothing. Uh, Yeah, that's, it's it's fairly difficult to do. I can't promise we're going to do that for the next decade, but... um... You know, we have the tools in place to try to replicate something like that. What I would love is for, um, you know, the market to give us a lot of opportunities, whether it's a really down year or we have changes in valuations between sectors. But, um, you know, that's what's been done over the last decade plus. The up market capture is below 100%, which means that when you have an up month, we typically trail the market we're behind. We typically do 70% of that upside. And I think I was talking to uh, one of our wholesalers at the airport yesterday, and he was saying, you know, I'm getting a little bit older, and I just, I got to tell you, I'm just getting more and more into my, you know, my personal money into a Euro mode of thinking, which is, you know, volatility is very difficult to withstand, and the process of losing less compounds a whole lot more than it looks at first, because when you look at up capture of 70%, you would think, well, it's got to be very, very difficult to outperform. But if, you, if you, um, you go down way less than the market when you have a down draft, or when you're up when the market's down, like happened last year, it's so much easier after that to outperform and to, um, to do really well. Plus it keeps you in the game because there's very little volatility. So you can withstand the ups and downs way more. And so it's easier for you uh, as an investor or your clients uh, on you know, when they get their quarterly statements.
1: Do you, do you get uh, pressured because people say you're not performing
2: no, I wouldn't say I get pressure, but I would say it felt a little lonely for a few years there, where there was there were a lot of shiny objects, and I, I'd love to take that that moment to really thank the people who went through the desert with me for a few years there, who truly believed in the process of looking at the horizon and being in that slightly slower boat, but you know built for for a hurricane, and then. The hurricane came last year, and everybody's realizing that it's okay to have a bigger boat to survive it. So thank you for for staying the course, and and hopefully the next decade or two together will be just as good as the last one.
1: I want to turn to the value, the global value uh, long short fund, and you've been running it for two years now. How how do you do it? Do you use the same strategies or principles?
2: I would say uh, last year was a year where um, the way I invest was um, you know everything kind of worked so let's let's start with that it it clicked Um, we had an extreme 10 12 years of uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy and then a lot of things unraveled and came my way we took advantage of all of that two-thirds of that came from the short side and it was a basically perfect storm on the short side in terms of what you could short and how frankly obvious it was if you were able to Position size appropriately, and on the long side was a little bit the same as well as as we saw in large cap um, was um, was helped by very defensive companies and the type of stocks that I focus and uh, focus on. And we had opportunities during the year as well where they became more depressed, and some of the stocks we own became very expensive, and we were able to to um, build that back into the portfolio. But if I can just, um, I'm just thinking about what happened in 2022 and maybe give people a bit of perspective as to what I feel happened over the previous several years. And maybe there's um, people who've been in the business for 20, 30 years and have a tough time explaining to the younger people in the business why the last 10 years were so different. Maybe you just, you can't figure out exactly how to, how to explain it. Um, Well, let me give you maybe one example that would help you and explain that. And for the younger people in the business, um, maybe internalize these numbers and, and, and explaining why we've had, such an extraordinary period. Um, If we go back to 2008 in the fall, we had a lot of distress in the US and something extraordinary happened, something that hadn't happened in 5,000 years of interest rates. We had bonds that had a duration of more than a year that went to negative interest yielding uh, in terms of um, uh, yield to maturity. That, you know, Warren Buffett was asked about it in 09 at the annual meeting, he said, you're never gonna see that ever again in your lifetime. And then in the fall of 09, there's a central bank, I think it was a Swedish central bank that went negative on its overnight rate. And then from there, we had a bunch of central banks that just decided to do the same. Every central bank around the world went to zero. Quantitative easing was used everywhere. So we went from zero uh, negative yielding debt to 3 trillion in 2014. And that went to 18 trillion in December of 2020. so the monetary side of things in in the financial world was at an extreme point we went from you know really really fighting inflation whichever way we could we did qe and negative interest rates and then all of a sudden inflation perked up and then we decided we needed to fight that Mm. so it took effectively um uh you know 12 years ish to get from zero to 18 trillion and then january 4th of this year and you can look it up on bloomberg um, there is a um, there's a function for that. On January 4th of this year, we hit zero on um, on the dollar of bonds outstanding globally that are negatively yielding. So we went very aggressively after inflation by raising rates everywhere around the world, and yeah, that includes Japan. Um, so the world changed quickly um, from a monetary perspective. From sorry, from a fiscal perspective, what we did when COVID hit is also extreme. We had been cutting rates, doing QE across the world from 2008 to 2020, and then COVID hit. And then we decided to just keep rates at zero, and then the the Federal Reserve bought trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities, so QE, you know, infinity, effectively. And then on the fiscal side, we also wrote checks to everyone, and we created massive budget deficits everywhere, including the US. So we went all out. craziness both from a monetary and fiscal policy peak in december 2020 i guess the peak of you know the, the drug-induced euphoria that we were living in, in the financial world and then all of a sudden we started fighting um inflation by raising rates and as always happens when you withdraw you know alcohol or drugs you know the patient started panicking a little bit and lo and behold when did we have the mean craziness january 2021 yeah and you know if you look at the graph of you know gamestop it, it looks like somebody who just was is on a drug withdrawal and it's still there and now you know we're trying to make our way through that and 2022 was really an unraveling of that it was effectively the craziness that happened the year before um, unraveled and revaluation of stocks that were just left for dead or just discarded because they were too boring or too good a business to even look at uh, for the past 10 to 12 years. So this is where we are today. Interest rates are at real levels, levels that they were 15, 20 years ago. And so the history of uh, financial markets can start again, but at a level that's what we lived before 2008.
1: But we haven't done a complete rewind to 2008, thousand and We're still at heavy levels, for
2: instance, in debt levels and those kinds of things. That's uh, absolutely true. We're, we pushed interest rates up, but the QE part has not been unwound. Yeah. almost like like five percent of it has been unwound, maybe maybe ten. Um, and on the um, on the fiscal side, we had fiscal surpluses in '99, 2000 in the U.S. And we're still we're still hitting some pretty big budget deficits. So, yeah, things are still fairly uh, open, and we're still uh, even though we're trying to fight inflation, it's still fairly loose on the on the budgetary front and and unemployment is as low as it's ever been. So we're still, things are still pretty loose. I think what happened on the fiscal side is pretty uh, interesting to look at too. We've had, you can look at excess savings in the US, how much more money people saved during COVID as opposed to the trend. And that was anywhere between two and three trillion. Mm. Uh, And we've burned through about half of that, probably a little bit more, maybe 55% of that. As rates went up and people just have to live through the checks that they received and some of the some of the savings they they had, uh, but we're going to hit a really low point where several people will be much more distressed at some point, probably later this year, and we'll see what happens. Um, what happens at that point?
1: So you still have to protect your capital. It's not like all clear.
2: I think it's it's fairly easy to paint a really bad you know, scenario. And I'm just trying to not be too bearish. I was having a discussion with Patrice before coming here and we had a long discussion about it. And it was very helpful in, in um, you know, putting things into perspective for me because as Andrew said earlier today, the yield curve is inverted. And the last eight times it's been inverted, we had a recession and every time we had a recession, it was inverted. So. You know, inversion of a yield curve at this level, the three month, 10 year is at 100 basis points or something, that is fairly predictive of a pretty good slowdown. So that's, you know, that's not super positive. Um, and then, you know, you look at the distress in credit generally, it's, it's nowhere near levels that are um, looking like it's gonna be bad. If you look at um, bank charge offs in the US, mm. they average 50 basis points. They bottomed historically at 40 in the last 40 years. They peak at between 300 and 600 basis points when we have a recession. They bottomed this cycle at 19 basis points last year, and now they're at 26. Mm -hmm. So we've never been, before last year, we had never been at this level, and uh, we went way lower last year. There's a lot of savings in the system. It's still the case. The unemployment rate is still very low. But circumstances are so, different this time there's so much money that corporations raise as you were saying Uh, from a fiscal perspective people were given a lot of money so savings is still pretty high so it is possible that the inverted yield curve now doesn't mean that it's going to be exactly what we lived historically Um, But for sure, we have to be careful. I think it's it's kind of a given at this point. But I I ask these questions because I'm
1: looking at your long short and uh, I want to walk through the process, but uh, I also want to ask if there will be fewer shorting opportunities as a result of everything you just described. So let's walk through how you go through these long opportunities and the short opportunities,
2: and and we'll go from there. So the longs are very similar to what I would do in large cap or North Star. They They are fairly similar to that. Um, I've been doing merger arbitrage when I need to in large cap, when I don't find um, other stocks that are attractive enough. I will either sit in a little bit of cash or I will buy a cash arbitrage situation, which is low risk, low return, very liquid. Uh, Company A buying company B, you buy company B until the the transaction closes and you make 3-4%. Um, in, in the long short fund, we do a little bit of that as well, but we can do share exchanges now because you need to short the acquirer and go along the inquiry. But on you know, the, the bulk of what I do on the short side is opportunistic shorts, which are companies that are problematic in one of many ways. If we go back to Jeremy Grantham, that's the way I explain it to our analysts, that there needs to be one problem to, to short a company, and it, it's, it's gotta be simplified to one of three things. It's, um, the balance sheet issue it's either an operational issue or it's a valuation issue or i would add a, f- a fourth to that which is it's a fraud we're finding um, like a business risk yeah so okay. um, last year we had a lot of valuation risk and periodically we have a lot of those that come back to market we have waves of you know the the, the patient just you know coming back to life a little bit well, in terms of speculation, and that, so valuation risk comes back, it, it seems like every four or five months in the last year and a half. So we're able to short a few every now and then, and then they correct fairly quickly. And on the as the economy progresses, we may get more balance sheet issues. Um, there's certainly one that was a valuation issue that became a balance sheet issue in the past year that I'm still short, um, or operational issue, which means the company has a decent balance sheet but if we have a recession or slowdown, it's going to hit it way more than people expect. So earnings are going to disappear.
0: And
1: does does that typically show up on a stock by stock basis or sectors? Could you say
2: all energy and pipeline companies are like that, or you know what I mean? It used to be, you know, the valuation issue was more sector or you know, it was grouped. They were they had very big similarities. So we have to be careful, and it was you tried to diversify away from it if you could. Uh, but I'd say right now, it's a little bit everywhere. There's a lot of operational ones that are in very different sectors. They tend to be a little bit more cyclical than two, three months ago. Mm. Uh, things move very quickly. Um, you know, in December, um, I was short way more companies that were very stable, very defensive, trading at 35 times earnings. I had a few of those on, I have way less today, and today I have more cyclicals that have rebounded massively. You know, you try to take advantage of that. And I even have a few more valuation risks, which are stocks that have doubled in the last month, that some of them may actually go bankrupt. Some of them are just speculations that just people want to buy right now. I mean, we're not off the drugs yet, but also it's sometimes pretty easy to figure out, okay, this is crazy speculation. Sometimes the the level, the price of the bond stays at five cents on the dollar Mm. and the stock doubles. It clearly is a short squeeze. Um, and you know, if you have the ability to short the stock, then you can make a few basis points. Again, as I said earlier, um, position sizing on the short side is incredibly important. I have learned that in the last two years. I'm still you know, mastering it better and better every day, but it is very, very important.
1: You know, um, Mark Schmiel is up here and he saw the rebound in tech stocks as exciting and um, great future and those kinds of things. I would think you would be thinking the other way. Or am I right? Tech sector in particular, because that's had the biggest rebound
2: Yeah, if we if circumstances are different enough right now that we're only going into kind of a slowdown, then it's entirely possible. I mean everything the things are so different. We've gone through COVID and fiscally and monetarily, things are very different. A lot of companies refinance. a lot of financing is really termed out, covenants are non-existent. so it, you know, things um, things look similar, but they might be different enough for this to just be a mid-cycle slowdown. So if that's the case, there there are opportunities in tech. And the big advantage I have in looking at everything now, because I need to look at the extreme places where you can short and the really, really cheap that you can go long, is mm. some of these eventually become so cheap that they become interesting. And I know what <laughs> they are because I've made money shorting them, but sometimes they're down 80%. And they actually have a pretty good pre-cash flow um, generation ability and they could get taken out and management's not doing such a bad job, maybe doing a better job. And maybe they've changed a little bit what they're targeting because they realized that g- growth was what everybody was after two years ago. But maybe now they realize we can be a free cash flow generating machine and only grow 20 instead of 40. And that's plenty. So yeah, there's a few that are that I'm interested in and that might shock people, but I don't really care. <laughs>
1: So you're saying that prior short opportunities become long
2: opportunities? Yes, some have. Wow, that's kind of cool. Uh, Do you you have leverage on the short side? In the long short fund, there's no uh, explicit leverage. The only thing that you could call leverage is when we short a stock, we get cash for shorting it because we sell it. We get cash and we can buy a few more shares of something else with that. So that's how you get over 100% long. You can be 130% long and 30% short. But that's the only leverage or complexity in that fund. There's nothing more complex than equities. There might be a few bonds here and there, but uh, there's no futures options, nothing complicated.
1: Okay. So if somebody's looking to buy Dan, for instance, you have
2: two kind of standalone mandates. Walk me through what people should focus on. Well, Canadian large cap and, and concentrated value are effectively um, the same product. It's um, you know 51% Canada and the rest. I try to go outside. It's my process. I've been managing uh, those for a decade plus. Really focused on downside protection. It's 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 own as a very core product for clients in the sense that it has a Canadian base and it can go anywhere else to protect capital, even a bit more. Uh, it's been proven. And then you know my new baby, uh, global value long short can basically do the same thing, but has less restrictions. It can be global, it can go mid small caps, and it can short as well to try to add alpha on that side. Um, and it has all the tools to have maybe you know, slightly better returns. And last year was a bit extreme, but you know, we can do more things. So technically we could have a bit, you know, slightly better return in large cap over five, 10 years. And we have the tools to reduce volatility, but I will I'll, I will say this um, extra point today is I want to make it clear that if there is alpha to to go after, I will do it like I did in 2020 in large cap fund. In 2020 in large cap fund, we went significantly overweight oil and gas, and um, you know I tried to you know transfer all of that information to the wholesalers and to the clients that for a little bit, large cap was gonna be a little bit more volatile than what they've experienced, and it was just taking advantage of those opportunities. If you see a bit more volatility in global value long short, it's because I'm going after something that might be a little bit more volatile, but I see as being extremely attractive on a risk reward basis over one or three years. So if you see some some small dips in, in global value long short, maybe there's unbelievable opportunities And again, as I said, you need to manage uh, the position size, and I'm trying to do that as best I can. But sometimes you just can't help yourself. If a stock is trading, you know, if a stock is worth a dollar and it's trading at 20, uh, and you short, you know, a little bit of it, and it goes to 25, and you short a little bit more of it, and then it goes to one, um, you know, the thing is, it's, it's a pretty good setup. That's, you just have to withstand the volatility as it goes from you know 20 to 18 to 25 to 17 to 23. And so um, it's something that I've learned to do and I, I think I can do pretty well. But if you see a bit more volatility, it's because we're going after opportunities.
1: Well, it seems to me that large cap would be described as buy and hold. You're gonna have those things for a long period of time. And you and I have had that discussion that they would be there for years and not gonna be the case on the long short. It's not, you gotta be more nimble.
2: Uh, I mean I need to be more nimble. I think um, you know, I think it's a product that eventually, I think eventually alternative products are going to become more and more core of what people invest in. Oh. And if we have a market that's a little tougher for a year or two or three you know if we have a sideways market or goes up you know there's a lot of uh, iterations of up and down before we, we take off again. I think people will realize the benefits of having more arrows to your quiver where you know a year like last year we can go after, what we feel are opportunities that have very high return to risk ratios uh, and just pile them up one after the other. If the market keeps sending them our way, I'm gonna go after them. And I think there's, you know, as I'm sitting here today, I think there's a lot of them on the short side, a little less on, on the long side, but they, they exist as well. And, and that ebbs and flows very quickly. And we're very nimble in that fund. So it, people need to understand that the dynamics inside of that fund. And I don't want people to buy something that Um, they don't understand or that is not what they expect so don't look at past performance we have a process that looks like large cap with a few more things i can do but it those things i will do um, you know to the maximum of my ability if the opportunities are there Okay, so let's go back to those
1: four principles that we started off with, because the fourth one that you mentioned is don't try to predict what you can't predict. And that's a macro call. And yet we've had discussions here about uh, inflation and uh, tight monetary policy, those kinds of things. And you mentioned the business cycle possibly being in mid-business cycle. Uh, I want to ask you,
2: where do you think we are in the business cycle? And maybe comments on inflation or, or monetary policy. If you look at my funds for over the last 10 years, every quarter, you'd always think I'm predicting a recession because the way I'm positioned is very defensive. Uh, there, we will add here and there, you know, the, the odd oil and gas companies, if they are incredibly cheap and the oil price is low and I don't need to predict anything for, to, for us to make money. We only need to withstand the volatility on the way up then we'll, we'll go there. But I'm very, I, I truly believe in less volatility will give you better returns over time if you buy good companies and you buy them at a reasonably cheap price. So if you look at my funds, I'm, I look very, very defensive. You know, do I think we're going into a recession? That's the way I'm positioning all the time. So yes, and you know, if we don't, then we'll try to, <laughs> we'll try to make our money in, in, in those really high performing companies. It might be a little slower than other funds when the market's going up. As we saw at the beginning, 70% upside capture means in up markets, I tend to trail. And that's normal. And uh, that you just, we just all have to be okay with that. And frankly, it's, uh, it's been a great journey over over a decade. Um, a lot of people have come on board and they tend to, tend to stick around. And, and hopefully, it will stick around for another 10, 20 years.
1: <laughs> yes, hopefully. Uh, geographically, where do you see the
2: most opportunistic value? Emerging markets, Europe, or the UK? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I hope a few people bought a few dollars of Patrice's funds, uh, as I've been pounding the table He's on. He's referring to Patrice yeah, so Yes, right. He, he might a, not know. A, right. So Patrice runs. A, a global fund and an uh, international fund, which e- excludes US, and, and I've been talking up his international fund because I thought the best value and the best opportunities were outside of, uh, of the US. The US is 59% of global market cap with 4% of the population, so we have to think that at some point that might change. Um, I still think there's opportunities in all these regions. It's really, it's, it, it's these three versus the rest. It's EM, Europe, UK, versus the rest, I think UK still has a lot of opportunities and, and Europe and EM has a lot of China in there um, that's bounced massively. So I'd be a bit more defensive on, on or I would be you know, less aggressive going on into EM here, but over five, 10 years, do these um, regions have what it takes to outperform the US based on how, you know, where they're valued and what they can give us? Yeah.
1: Uh, what do you think about Canadian equities relative
2: to U.S.? That's a very difficult question because Canada is such a diverse uh, country in terms of concentration of sectors. We have a lot of financials, a lot of commodities. You really need to have a view on commodities and, and financials. And uh, frankly, I have some financials, but not a lot because, you know, Canadian housing is at 10 times household income, which, you know, it was, it was a bubble in the U.S. at six times. So that's, that could be slightly problematic, although the industry is you know, such a good one that they'll somehow find a way to get through that without too much problems. But um, I think Canadian real estate is gonna be a little tougher for, for a while. Mm. Um, and commodities, it all depends on your view on, on China. I think they've bounced quite significantly if we, we look at the base ones. Um, and obviously oil and gas is more based on global, the global economy, the US mm. uh, as part of that. So, I don't know, I guess I'd, I'd still bullish on a few oil companies. I'm not short um, oil in, glo- in global value long short. Still think um, the fundamentals are still pretty good, but we are gonna rely more and more on the analysts uh, because you know, 2021, 2022, it felt like the analysts, you know, they worked really hard and it was really difficult for them to dis- um, you know, make a difference between company A and Company B in their sector. We're starting to see real differences now that COVID has passed and things are reopening and we have China reopening. Um, We're seeing differences in the way people and companies um, set themselves up post COVID. And it's more and more important. We can feel it every day. uh, What our analysts think and uh, what they think of their companies and and the meetings that they have. So hopefully they'll make them feel better and it will increase the uh, the alpha we can get in the funds.
1: Hmm. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, here's a good one. Why should
2: an investor consider your funds right now? Well, right now, the, my funds are to be considered for a long-term perspective. Uh, it's to protect you against downside. If you think that there's gonna be a recession, probably buy a bit more. If you don't, then, you know, buy it as a core part of a portfolio of funds that would include Hugo and Mark and, and Patrice, and. Uh, and but you know for older clients i've been told that um, there's a lot of affinity with that protection of capital once you've worked really hard to get to the point you're at and you want to you want to sleep well Um, and these are the people that are also willing to go through the desert in 2019 with me where i'm more boring i don't go up as much as other more exciting products out there um, so that's that's what you have to really figure out and it's not the question of right now versus I don't think now is better time or worse time It's a question of does that fit with what I'm aligning for for the next 10 to 20 years? Where am I going? Where, you know, how do I want to be positioned for retirement? How stressed am I when markets go down? etc.? kind of a less bumpy ride Yeah, I could say that you could say that I mean again, get <laughs> we have a bigger boat sturdier boat Um, And when the storm comes, we do better, go way
0: faster. (laughs) Dan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter thanks again. See you next time.